my two boys that were over there, Judah and Caleb, are fascinating with, fascinated with racing. Uh, some friends of mine down here got me watching F1. How many of you have watched F1 racing? Yeah, they got me watching that. And started with a Netflix reality show that we powered through because there's nothing else to do. We don't have cable. And so we started watching this Netflix thing. And then pretty soon we're watching racing. And Caleb is into it, my youngest. Uh, he loves cars. He sits in our window and names all the cars that go by. And when he doesn't understand what car that is, he'll say, what car is that? And I'll say, oh, that's a Honda. Wow. A Honda. And I'll be like, oh, buddy. If you could just keep this when you're 16, I'll buy you a Civic. Uh, it'll be great. And then one day, he decided he was going to um, uh, get into Lamborghinis. And I was like, oh, man, now everything is a Lamborghini. And so we're watching this F1 race, and he goes, Daddy, is that thing faster than a Lamborghini? Yes, it is. Whoa, how much does that cost? Millions. Can I have one? No. Uh, you, so I got him a little Hot Wheel one. Uh, it was the Mercedes car, not the Red Bull car. And so it was Hamilton, not Verstappen. But so anyways, he started getting into this and he loves it. And now Judah's into it, the six-year-old. Everything at my house is a race. Yesterday, uh, Judah decided he was going to race Caleb back to the house after we were riding bikes. The only problem was Caleb didn't know he was racing. And so Judah just zooms by, gets to the driveway, and then he does this floss, and it's not really a floss, it's just him moving his body in a weird way, stands in the driveway and rubs it into Caleb that he won the race. Caleb, three-year-old, breaks into tears. I didn't know we were racing! And he's stuck. And so, but everything is a race, and even when you don't realize you're not racing, realize you're racing, at my house you are. They will leave here probably about a half hour before I leave here, and they'll get home and then say, Dad, we won. I'm like, well, what are we racing for? I didn't know or I would have won too. I have slightly competitive. Racing is a metaphor that Paul likes to use as well in Scripture. Paul talks constantly that we are in a race. And when he talks about this, he's not just inventing that, that our relationship with Jesus is a race. It, Isaiah says it, Psalms decides to talk about it. He's picking up on a term that was known in the Old Testament of we are in a race with Jesus. We are walking with him throughout our life. But he does use this term most. In Timothy, he says, fight the good fight. Finish the race. In, in, uh, in Corinthians, he says, run the race in order to get a prize. Now, they didn't have F1 racing or, or NASCAR or any of those races. They had foot races. And many like to think that Paul enjoyed running because he always talks about running a race. I don't like running, so we're just going to talk about the race part. But when Paul talks about racing, usually he's talking about it in a way that it, it meets, or he's a metaphor for salvation. You see, we, in, in a race, when you're watching a race, the most exciting parts are what? The start and the finish. That's when everyone gets into the position. That's when the crashes happen. That's, that's the exciting part, the start. The finish is the celebration. And so Paul talks about our salvation in the terms of a race because there's three parts to salvation that Paul talks about, and there's three parts to the race. The first part, I don't know if this is going to be on the screen. If it is, great. If it's not, use your imagination. Uh, the first part he talks about the, when we start the race, the most exciting part is this term of justification. This is the start of your race. It's where your relationship with Jesus began. 
It's because of Jesus that you're not condemned as a sinner anymore. It's because of Jesus that when you stand before God right now, he doesn't see you as a sinner. He sees you as a saint. Many of us define ourselves as sinners. That's not who you are anymore. If you said yes to Jesus, you follow him. Sinner no more, saint. Paul talks about all Christians being saints over and over and over in Scripture. When he, The first line of every one of his letters, saint, saint, saint. That's you. You're a saint. Yeah, you've sinned before, but because of Jesus, you've started the race new. You are now justified. Uh, the way that we remembered it in elementary school was Jesus sees you, or God sees you just as if you didn't sin. You are justified. This is the start of the race. The end of the race, the exciting part, is called glorification. This is the finish line. This is the future. If justification is the past, glorification is the future. We're going to get through this weird theology words in a minute. We'll kind of get to what it means now. So just hold on. Glorification is where we're all heading. It's us living forever with God after we die or when he comes back. It's the glorified body that that you'll get or I'll get that when I have hair again. Everything is renewed, restored, brought back to the way it was intended to be. You're welcome that I don't have hair. Imagine how good looking I would be if I did. And you wouldn't be able to listen to anything that I said. So in heaven, the glorified body, look out. Okay? Glorification. So justification, the beginning. Glorification, the end. In the middle, in the middle part of the race is one of the most monotonous parts of watching the racing. It's 100 or 300 laps if you're watching NASCAR. It's, it's like 44 laps if you're watching some F1 races. Not a lot happens, and you really have to pay attention. It's the difficult part. It's the daily walk part, the part where the mon- mundanity comes. I don't know if that's a word it is now, but when the mundane part of your life comes in. And Paul calls this, or the theological part of it, is sanctification. If the other two are effortless, where you start and where you finish, sanctification is difficult. This is the part of our life where we grow. This is the part where we change and learn new things about ourselves as we learn new things about Jesus. We know about our sins. We're made aware of our sins because the Spirit is awakened in our hearts and it's pointing out things in our life saying, hey, because you're following Jesus, I don't think this is right. That voice in your head, the Spirit coming to you, convicting you, is sanctification. It's throwing off the old stuff that you used to in order to run the race even better. It takes great effort, and it's exhausting, and it never ends. Sanctification is the work we do to become more and more like Jesus, the middle part of the race, where the tires blow out, where you have moments and weeks and sometimes years where you don't feel like you're making any momentum. It's the part where uh, you run out of gas, like we talked about last week, and you're on the side of the road wondering what's going on, and it's the day-to-day part of your lives. And so Paul writes this letter to the Philippian church, and the Philippians letter is, is unlike any of, other, any other of Paul's letters. There's a, a sense of endearment towards the church in Philippi. He, he loves them. They're kind of the only church that's really getting it. Corinth, they were having some problems. Colossians, having problems. Galatians were following, falling back to Judaism and walking away from Jesus. But the Philippians, their encouragement from Paul is this. Keep going. You're doing great. Yeah, you got a couple things here and there. Keep going. Keep running the race. And today, uh, it's, it's a kind of a standalone week, but I, I thought it'd be good for us to hear what Paul says to the people of Philippi. 
And I think in here, we can find two encouragements that give us strength to keep us running in our race towards Jesus. If the finish line is glorification, if the finish line is seeing Jesus face to face, we need to know how to run this race well. So if you have your Bibles, I hope you do. Philippians chapter 3, it comes after Ephesians. Ephesians comes after Galatians, God's electric power company. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So if you have your Bibles, go to Philippians chapter 3. That's the third chapter. Uh, We're going to look in verse 12. He says this, Not that I have already obtained this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what's behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on for the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So what's the first encouragement that we see there? The first one is this. Realize that you're running a race at which no one arrives yet. He says, not that I have already obtained this or have already arrived at my goal. You see, Paul had been a Christian for 30 plus years at this time. If you hold your Bible up and look at the New Testament, everything after Acts and probably till you get to Hebrews was written by Paul. Some people say Paul wrote Hebrews. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. I think somebody else named Lydia wrote Hebrews. But that whole section of Scripture was written by Paul. Paul is the, if you think of someone who's got it all figured out, your first answer is like Jesus did. Your second answer will probably be, I think Paul was the next best thing. But Paul admits this, I have not arrived yet. I'm still pressing on for the goal. Paul did a lot of things as a Christian that we would look at and go, wow, that man is so successful. He argued in front of the Roman philosophers, planted church after church after church after church, did a whole bunch of other stuff that, that made Christianity what it is today. He's a hero of our faith, but in his own words, he's not arrived yet. No one has. And I think oftentimes we get stuck in our race because we begin to be frustrated that we'll never make up any ground we haven't arrived. No one has, not even Paul. And one, or we can be discouraged by this and say, Paul did all of these great things and he never figured it out, so why am I even trying to do this? What's the point? I'm never going to get to the finish line. You can be discouraged and say, I'm going to retire from the race. No more racing. Or you can look at it this way, and I hope this is how you look at it. Paul is still racing even though he hasn't finished it yet at this point. There's still a race to be fought, new lessons to be learned, new truths to understand. Every day you be made aware of new changes that, he need, that you needed to make. And Paul did this. You can see his confession at the end of Romans. Look, I'm still learning. And so are we. If we're honest with ourselves, we struggle with that, ten- that tension. At least I do. There's always something more to learn. There's a desire in all of us, or at least for some, it's a stronger desire, but we all want to be perfect, right? Even the ones who aren't type one on the Enneagram or the perfectionists, we all want to be perfect. We want to get it right. We want to finish the race. We want to check the boxes and be done. We want to achieve. We want to accomplish. It's this desire that we have. 
But then when we realize that there's something that we won't achieve, either we get frustrated and quit, or we act like we have it all together and fake it and lie. Why can't you run the race, or why run the race if we won't win? And then if you get to that point, then you lose your joy. You you lose your energy. You lose your drive. We stop racing, and Paul is clear at this. He hasn't arrived yet. No one else has either. And what he's applying is that as we mature in Christ, true maturity shows us realizing that you haven't arrived yet. You haven't hit the goal, yet you keep trying anyways. I see this as highly comforting. Perfection is something that we aspire towards, yes, but perfection and reaching the goal is something that we'll never get. Paul says this in verse 12, even though I haven't obtained it, I press on. Even though I'm not perfect, even though I haven't arrived, even though I've done all of these things, I still push, I still race, I keep moving. The word for press on is the Greek word diokio, and you can say it. Diokio. One more time. Laura. Diokio. There you go. Hey, just watching. Diokio. It means to press on. It means to push. It means to, to try to obtain. It means, in this sense, to keep running. And Paul is using a sports metaphor because sports, they portray it perfectly. In our sports today, sorry if you don't like sports, we're going to talk about sports ball for a minute. A baseball player will strike out seven of ten times, or at least not get on base. And he's considered a success. A basketball player, he or she, might, might miss half the shots they take, but they'll make half of them, and they're considered a success. A golfer will play a tournament, miss the cut this week, go next week, make the cut, and win the tournament. It's this idea that even though sometimes you fail, you keep pushing. You keep going. You keep going to the plate and taking a swing. You keep taking your shots in basketball. You keep golfing. Yeah, we should all keep golfing. You keep golfing because this is what you're called to do. You're not perfect. No one is. But we keep trying. In other words, Paul is saying this. Perfection in your spiritual walk is nice, but it's not required. You're never going to be perfect this side of heaven. What is required, however, is movement. You can't say, cool, I've started the race. You get five feet off of the starting line and go, good enough. That's not what, that's not what Paul is saying to do. Perfection is not the goal. Movement is. Following Jesus is not a stationary or one-time event. It's not something where we arrive at, but something where we chase after constantly. We're running after it. And what's it mean for us? It means this. Have some grace for yourself. We can be gracious because Jesus knows we're not going to always get things right. His 12 disciples never got things right. He knows that we're going to fall. He knows that we're going to slip up. That's why grace is there. So you can be gracious towards you. It means that when you mess up and you realize, whoa, I really jumped off the track on that one, means there's grace to get back on the race and keep going and keep pushing. When someone does something to you personally and you're offended by it, this begins to shape their, your response. Why? If you're not perfect, neither are they. 
And so you begin to have this ability to understand and forgive, and the same grace that is given to you to get back into the race is the same grace we should give to others when they should get back in the race. None of us have achieved the goal. None of us have achieved the pinnacle of perfection. So why do we expect it from anyone else? Instead, we hold each other accountable. Not to model perfection, but accountable towards Jesus. We hold each other accountable saying, hey, you've, you've stepped out of line here. You've stepped out of the race. It's time to get back in it. It's time to pursue Jesus. We can mend our relationship. We can have grace towards one another. We can have confession and repentance and forgiveness and restoration and then get back on the track and start going at it. Paul hasn't arrived. We haven't arrived. But it didn't stop Paul. Verse 12, he continues, I press on to take hold of that which has taken hold of me. Now there's a lot, it's a really weirdly worded sentence. It's okay to say the Bible says things weird. In every translation, that is a hard one to get around. It's wordy. Because there's not an English word that sufficiently translates what Paul is trying to get at here. Paul plays a double meaning in this word, take hold. It's the word lumbano. And it means that he's taking hold of Christ as Christ at the same time has taken hold of him. Uh, the phrase, katalabano, uh, which, which he uses later to talk about this, it's not common. It means to seize, to grasp something that is so big and so wide and so deep that you think you can have your arms around it, but then you realize that you don't. And so you reach a little further and you katalabano, you're trying to grasp everything that you have for it but your arms aren't big enough to get. If we're going to use a swimming pool as an example, you think you're at the bottom of it, and then you get to the bottom of the pool, and then Catalabano, it's another eight feet down, and you got to keep swimming. And then you keep swimming because you realize just how big and wide and deep God's grace is. And he's trying to get a hold of it. So Christ's grace took him, Catalabano'd him, and he's trying to, in turn, Catalabano Christ in the same same way, but he can't do it. But it's so good to keep trying, and he keeps trying. The other day, Caleb came out of his room, and it, uh, he was just after his rest time, and, and he came out with all of his stuffies. And he likes to sleep with them at the foot of his bed, and they, it's kind of creepy. They watch him as he sleeps. It's weird. But he came out with them, and he had about five of them in his little arms, and he was frustrated. Because every time he tried to grab the other 15 or whatever he has on his bed, he couldn't get them all. And he was like, but I want all of them with me all the time, all at once. And in this little three-year-old tantrum, but I can't. Daddy, make my arms bigger. I want this. That's what Paul is saying. This salvation, this grace is yours. You have it. You've been justified. You started the race. You're running the race well. You can't, you're, 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 but it, the race is so big. What the goal is that you're after is so large that you're not going to be able to conquer it in a day. It's going to take time. This is sanctification. Realizing that this grace is bigger than you'd ever imagine. And every time you come to the end of it, it's like, nope, there's more. There's always more. And this is Paul's illustration. He has been seized by this grace of Jesus and return, he's trying to seize it back, but can't. And even though he can't, he keeps trying. And even though we slip up, 
Even though we come to the end of ourselves and our arms aren't big enough to get around this grace, we still keep trying. So keep pursuing is what Paul says. That's the first encouragement. Keep pursuing. You're going to trip up. Your car's going to spin out. You're going to get a flat. You're going to pull a hamstring. You're going to fall. Get up. Keep going. Keep moving. Keep pushing. Paul gives us another encouragement. It comes in verse 13. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. That's the word Cotalabano again. But one thing I do, I forget what is behind and I'm straining towards what is ahead. The second encouragement is right there. Forget what's behind. Nothing weighs us down more than the past. Both the good parts of your past, where you celebrate and said, I nailed that part, and the bad parts, the sinister parts. Shame and guilt and regret are rivers that can cut through the deepest of rocks. They leave scars that are difficult to cover. The times where it wasn't your fault that this thing happened to you, but you still hold the blame. Or, or the private incident that you don't really want to talk about. Or the public one that everyone knows way too much of. Whether public or private, some aspects of your past will always be painful. And when they're brought to your minds, you try to move on from them. You try to push them away. You don't want to talk about it. Maybe you say this, I, I can't move on. Do you, do you remember, remember what I did? Maybe this is your self-talk. Remember what you did? You can't move. No, 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 no. You're disqualified. I can't move on. What if they find out? What if people know that I'm a fraud? What do they do? I can't move. I'm just going to stay here and hide and, and take myself out of the game. Or you can't move on. You're a blank. Whatever you call yourself in those shameful parts of your mind. The things that you define yourself out instead of a saint. I can't move on. I'm this. In our lives, anytime we want to take a step forward, we will constantly be reminded of the places where we've taken a step back. Anytime you want to remain to step forward, you'll be reminded why you can't. And it goes in our walk with Jesus. It goes in our everyday lives too. I can't do this because of this. We all have reasons. Shame, guilt, and regret are the heaviest burdens that we try to shoulder. But what Paul, what's Paul's encouragement? Forget about those. If he was a mobster, he would say, forget about it, right? Forget about them. Forget what's behind. You don't understand. You don't know what I did. You don't know who I am. Paul says, you're right. I don't. But we can move past it. I don't need to know why. Here's why. Do you remember why Paul is moving forward? Do you remember that thing he's trying to get his arms around? Grace. Grace looks at your past and says, I don't see that anymore. Jesus took the list of your past to the cross and put it behind his hands and put a nail and then covered it in blood so he didn't have to see it anymore. That's grace. Shame, guilt, regret are challenging for us to cover but they're no match for Jesus. And Paul says grace is why we keep going. Jesus illustrated this. Jesus illustrates everything, so let's just talk about him a little bit. Jesus illustrated this. Uh, Remember the woman caught in adultery? 
She, it's in John 8. She was drugged down from her room. Only her, the guy that she was in the act with, didn't have to be in trouble. But she was brought down and she was thrown at Jesus' feet. It was a, a private sin between two people, but she was the only one that was being held accountable. The, 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 the Pharisees that day were trying to catch Jesus in a trap, and she was the only one available to do this. And so she was in the middle of shame. She's an adulteress. Everyone in the town would knew what was happening. They see her being carted down, and she probably had a past. We don't know much about her. We don't know who she is. We don't know what happened to her after. There's some speculation that she followed Jesus after this. We don't know. But she's brought to the feet of Jesus. She didn't have anywhere to run. Instead, she just stood there waiting for Jesus to join in with the chorus of everyone around her, pointing the finger, saying, You're a failure. You're a moral failure waiting for the judgment, but what does Jesus do? In, instead of joining in, and if you know the answer to the story, don't, don't ruin it for other people yet. Don't be a spoiler. What's Jesus do? Instead of joining the chorus, he gets down on his hands and knees and he starts to etch a sketch in the dust. We don't know what he was written, writing. Some people say he was writing part of the law about forgiveness. Some people, we like to make things up and say, Jesus was writing this. We don't know what Jesus was writing. But the imagery is quite powerful. Here you have a woman who's stuck in shame, stuck in guilt, regret, being brought out as an example. And then you have the creator of the universe whose fingers molded the mountains and the rivers and the canyons, drawing in the dirt. And then as he's drawing, you hear the stones hit the ground. Thud, thud, thud. And then he stands up and he looks at, the one, looks at the other ones and says, if you haven't sinned, then you can throw the stone. Remember this story? And the only one who was sinless was him. And the only one who had the ability to throw the stone didn't. And instead of throwing a stone, he, I like to think in my mind's eye, after everyone's gone, he picks up her face and makes her stop looking down and looks at him in the eye and says, where are your accusers? And they're gone, she says. And he goes, I don't judge you either. And then he says this word, go, and sin no more. Go, get back on the race. Get back in the game. Go and sin no more. If you ever want to know what God thinks about that one thing you can't uh, keep thinking about, there you have it. He doesn't judge you. He says, go. And then the command there is, don't do it again. Get back in the game. Go and sin no more. That's grace. That's the grace that each one of us have. That's the grace that we all want. That's the grace that accompanies every step we make. The grace that followed and compelled Paul and the grace that Jesus wants us to grasp. I don't judge you guilty, he says. One way we can move on from the past is by realizing that Jesus no longer holds us to it. Paul says, I forget what's behind. A better way of translating forgetting as forgetting what's behind you is it's a process. The word forgetting that he uses is ongoing. It's, it's forever happening. So you're constantly forgetting what's behind you. I'm, I'm leaving that in the past. I'm leaving the past where it's belong because some memories have a long shelf life and the process of forgetting will take more and more grace for you to realize that they're gone. 
There's a com- some of complex. Some of our stories we carry with us for a long time, and it's going to take a long time to unravel. But Paul says, begin the process of forgetting. Let go of it so that you can chase after and get back in the race. The grace allows us to heal. We are forgetting what are, what's behind us. We're forgetting our mistakes. Yet that, that's, that's not the only thing that Paul says to forget. Our mistakes are one thing, but sometimes we need to forget our successes as well. Forgetting the failures isn't too tricky if you don't have any, right? You, yeah, I don't have any failures oftentimes, we think, yeah, I didn't do anything wrong. And then you keep pushing on that person who says that, and they'll tell you everything that they've done right. Paul says, not only forget your past, for, for your failures, forget your successes. How many people know people, because we're never that person, right? But we know somebody, and no elbows will be thrown here. But how many people know somebody who say, I've never missed a bill, I've never missed a Sunday, I always read my Bible, I've never had a doubt, everything is always good, and everything that I do is perfect. My stuff doesn't stink, right? We, we know those people. Paul had that list, too, that he had to forget. Earlier in Philippians, if you flip back to Philippians chapter 2, he goes on this long list of everything that Paul has done right. He says that he has all the credentials. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He was raised in a house that can trace their lineage back to the tribe of Benjamin, which was one of Joseph's brothers, which was a son of Jacob and a son of Abraham. That was a big deal because in the exile, they lost a lot of family lineage. But Paul was able to say, I'm Jewish beyond Jewish. I've kept the law, all 613. I've done it all. And Paul says, this is everything. I'm successful. Yet he says, I have to forget that too. Forgetting what's behind is oftentimes forgetting your successes. And it's not a way that's saying you're trash or you're nothing. The successes are good. But when they begin to define you more than Jesus, successes are become a problem. He had to forget all those things that brought status, fame, and security. Our regrets are paralyzing, but our our successes are often poisonous. Our successes can blind us to our needs. They can make us feel that we don't need to grow anymore. They can make us feel that we don't need to pursue anymore or change anything because you're perfect. Jesus had a run-in one day in Luke 18 with this man that's known as the rich young ruler. We don't know how young and we don't know how much he ruled over. That's just what we've called him. He came to Jesus and said, what must I do to have eternal life? And, and, he goes, and Jesus says, well, you follow what, what's the law teach of you? And the guy says, well, I've, I've done it all. And I imagine Jesus kind of trying to hold in his laughter like, <laughs> okay. And he says, one thing you don't have, uh, sell everything and give it to the poor. Now, it wasn't a con- condemnation of being wealthy. It was a condemnation of status. This man was thinking that I have all the status in the world I don't need to pursue anymore. The man walked away sad that day. He thought he had it all figured out and didn't have any more room for pursuing Jesus in him. I've figured it out, Jesus. I'm just coming to you to make sure that you check my boxes. Jesus then tells a story that it's, it's easier for a, a, a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a person like this who's so hung up on their status to follow Jesus. 
Another parable Jesus told us about a Pharisee who was praying in the temple and he was praying next to a tax collector. So in the Jewish eye, you have the elite of society and the tax collector. And we all know what we think about tax collectors. They thought even worse. And so this tax collector, this Pharisee says, thank you, God, that I'm not like that person. He had it all figured out. Tax collector saying, thank you, Lord, because I'm a sinner and I need your grace. Forgive me. The end of the parable, Jesus says, which one had their prayers heard? And never answers the question, but it's rhetorical saying the person who realized that they still had room to grow is the one who had it all figured out or more figured out than the other one. Most of the time we look to our mistakes and claim that they're the ones holding us back and we never acknowledge that our successes and our pride get in our way. We think we're doing fine. Why change? We think we're on the right track. Why change tracks? Why not just stay here? If failure can imprison us, then success can entangle us. And Paul says, look, I've done it all. He says, and, uh, he says, and then he labels them trash. In, cha- in verse 7 of chapter 3, he says, but whatever gains to me, I now consider lost for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything lo- lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may attain Christ. The word garbage is a fun one, and you're going to want to use this one when you, when you stub your toe. It's the word scubalon. You want to say that? You should. Scubalon. It means human waste. Okay? It means dung, poop, trash. Fill in the blank, whatever you want to call it. It's a harsh word, but, but the... The, the intention is clear. Suppose the bad things left behind are grace. The good things left behind are utterly worthless. They're poop. I don't need them anymore. I'm not going to hold on to them anymore. What happens when you hold on to poop? How many of you change the diaper? It gets in your hands. It gets everywhere. Paul says, I don't need that either. It doesn't matter. Everything good that I've done, everything bad that I've done, Worthless. What does matter? Pursuing Christ. Your affiliations, your degrees, however many you have, don't matter. What does matter? Pursuing Christ. What does matter? Grace. Your mistakes, the ones you made when you were driving in here, the mistakes, pursuing Christ. Grace. Those don't matter. Jesus doesn't see him anymore grace. Verse 14, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. The author of Hebrews says it this way, therefore, and he says therefore because in chapter 11 he's talking about all the people who have gone before us who have uh, lived the faith, right? It's Abraham, it's the hall of faith chapter. And in verse 12 he says, therefore, because of all of those We are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Watch this. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us. Let us run with perseverance the race marked for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. Your past is gone. Forget about it. You're running a race. Keep running. So how do we keep pursuing? By not living in the past, both the victories and the failures. We run by looking forward. How many of you have learned to drive? 
okay? Remember having to learn how to use the mirrors when you're driving? Okay, so you, the, the whole clue is like you have a windshield, and then you're supposed to, I guess, have the two side views, and then the rear view up here. When I was learning to drive, I had a problem scanning the mirrors and looking at them. Instead, I would stare. And so I'd be driving, and I'm supposed to be looking this way. Here I am driving my mom's Cadillac back then, and I'm looking in the rearview mirror, and I'm watching it the whole time. Is that necessarily safe? No. Why? You can't drive forward when you're constantly looking back. And if you look at something, next time you're in your car, maybe you'll remember this every time you drive, if you drive. The rearview mirror is that big. Unless you have one of those, like, 1985 Camaros, and they stretch all the way across, right? But the mirror should be about, I don't know what the use of that is, but the mirror is usually about that big. How big's the windshield? Like 40 times the size of it, right? What's more important? Looking forward. You can't drive forward by looking back. You're in a race. Paul's saying, stop looking behind you. Successes, failures. Instead, focus on what's ahead of you. What's Jesus calling you towards? What's the thing you need to stop doing in order so you can push on in the race? What's the thing that you're so fixated on in the past that it's going to cause you to crash if you don't take your eyes off of it? Or what's the thing that you're so fixated on that's caused you to pull over to the shoulder and totally take yourself out of the race? I'm never going to get it because of that thing that I've seen in the past. I'm never going to see it. No, Paul says, forget about it. It's behind. The past is reference. The rear view is a reference of where you've been. What's more important is where you're going. And he says, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. What's the prize? Jesus. If anyone tells you that there's another prize besides Jesus in following Jesus, run the other way. The goal of following Jesus is always Jesus. Remember, the person that we follow found himself on the cross, and we're supposed to follow suit. That means we die to ourselves. We pick up our cross, just like he did, and follow him. Because whether we realize it or not, you or I are in the middle of a race, pushing in and towards the grace that Jesus offers us. So what would it look like if you ran the race with total abandon towards Christ? Because it's easy to hit the cruise control button when it comes to our faith and essentially stop pushing. Well, I've, uh, it's like a bus stop, right? I've gotten my bus ticket. I'm just going to wait here until I die. That's not what we're supposed to do. The race has began. Get running before you get lapped. There's a race coming behind you and ahead of you. Start running. What would it be like for you if you took the time to identify that one thing that's holding you and then saying, you know what, Jesus, take this. I don't want it to identify me anymore. Whether it's a success or failure, I'm going to get rid of it. The shame or the pride, what's keeping you from moving? What would it look like in this next season to commit to joining in the race? What's that look like? What would it look like then? What's it look like? It looks like this. Let me get back here. Maybe reading your Bible. Let's try four times a week. You don't have to read entire books of the Bible, even though that's great and you could. 
It could be the daily verse that shows up on the Bible app. Read that. Well, or, or maybe it's, it's turning off the podcast and the music and the news and instead putting on some worship music. What would it look like to pursue Jesus? Or maybe it's turning everything off as you're on the bus or whatever or in your car and praying. Allowing God to bring things to your mind to pray for. Taking your needs that entangle us and then saying, I'm going to put this at the foot of the cross and I'm going to keep praying. I'm going to keep pursuing. What would it look like to allow his grace to shower over you? What would it look like to commit to establishing relationships that push you towards the goal, whether it's in a small group or a one-to-one discipleship? What would it look like to lay down your past, both the highs and the lows, and bring them to the cross and say they're trash compared to what you have for me, Jesus? It's time to move. This is a time where we need to get back in the race. It's time to pick up momentum. It's time to push on. It doesn't have to be at Lamborghini pace. It's the fastest car in the world, if you ask my son. But it has to be at a pace. What's your next step? It might be the next one you've taken in a series of steps, or it might be the first one that you've taken in a long, long time. But what is it today? We're in a race. We don't want to be like Caleb at the end of it saying, I didn't know we were racing. You're all racing. We're pushing towards Christ. What would it be like for Bethany Ballard in the next season to be known as a group of people who are pursuing Jesus with total abandon, marked by grace, inviting people to come and experiencing that grace, allowing the grace to affect us and then allowing it to dump out to other people as we're changed by it. What would that look like for our neighborhood? What would hope look like for this city? It looks like you and I pursuing what we're made to pursue. We're not going to get it right every time, but we're going to keep trying. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for pursuing us with total abandon. And Lord, may we do the same towards you. May we pursue you with total abandon. Knowing that the prize that awaits us is you. So may we run as fast as we can, as hard as we can to pursue you. May your grace expose the places in our lives where we're trying to shoulder some of the the heaviness that weighs us down and may we drop them. Like Hebrews says, may we get rid of the things that so entangle us. And may we find you in the middle of it. And you say, yeah, I'll take that weight from you. Get out there and run. No judgment, just grace. Get out there and run. So Holy Spirit, would you identify those places and then may you give us the courage to let go of them. May we move. May we stop living life in the rear view and begin looking through our windshield at where we're going for you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.